And this morning we'll be looking at the, at the heading, at the subject, Friends in High Places, based on Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 to 33. So as we continue our series in Genesis, we have mentioned that Abraham is described three times in, in Scripture as a friend of God. It's quite a title, isn't it? Uh, and that is the ultimate, really. That is the ultimate way, you know, how people sometimes say, you know, I have friends in high places. It's not what you know, it's who you know, that type of stuff. Well, it'll be the ultimate to have God as your friend. He's the ultimate friend in high places. And last week we, we spoke, we covered about this genuine friendship that he had with God and the lessons that we can draw from that on the first part of chapter 18. We saw him entertain, being hospitable, preparing this humongous meal over the top for the Lord, who we believe to be the Lord Jesus in a pre-incarnate form, and two angels who also appeared in bodily form. And after he had served the meal, they told him that Sarah would have a son the same time next year. And then the men got up and left and started heading towards Sodom. And Abraham accompanied them. And as the two angels proceeded towards Sodom, the Lord stayed back and spoke with Abraham about the impending judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And as we all know, what will happen in Sodom and Gomorrah will not be pretty. And next, next week, uh, Wally will be dealing with a lot more of, of that chapter. Now, some of what we discussed this morning obviously flows into the following chapter. But let, me, let me say this, that in today's climate of tolerance, or let's just say intolerance, because I don't think it's about tolerance, it's about intolerance. Many, even Christians, like to only talk about the love of God, but don't want to talk too much and even blush, I suppose, when it is brought up the whole issue of God in the Old Testament and what happened there. And we accused of of believing, of worshipping a God who is mean and unjust. Talk to any person on the street and, and you will likely hear doubts about the fairness of God in doing this or doing that. Sometimes they might cite the Bible, sometimes they might cite an, an, an apparent injustice in our world or even in their own lives. And sadly, many Christians think the same way. Or, or at the very least, at the very least, have not thought through or don't bother to even look at a little bit more in depth about a, a biblical response to those who accuse us of believing in a God who, how can you possibly believe something like that? Now, I'm hoping that our series in Genesis is addressing some of those issues, but obviously, in the times in which we live, a lot more work needs to be done. But this morning, I think we'll certainly point in that direction. Now, the first thing we want to say is from verses 16 to 19, getting to know God's purposes. That is so important, getting to know 
God's purposes and ultimate purposes for that matter. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all the nations on earth will be blessed through him for I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and what is just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. First thing I want you to notice is the way that Abraham just didn't wave goodbye to his visitors. He walked with them a while as he sends them off. This is a typical custom that perhaps in in the West is a little bit foreign to us. But if you do go to an ethnic home, even here in Australia, saying goodbye is, is like, you know, it just goes on and on. And even as they're walking out the door, you go down the street to the car and, and, and they're just waiting down the street as they're going. Typical, in, certainly typical in the Middle East. But here the result, the ultimate, is, is much, much more than simply a custom for it was during this time that Abraham learned about Sodom. The discussion didn't seem to have come up during the meal and even as Abraham watched over as they were eating and all of that, but he comes up here. So if he hadn't taken the time to actually walk with them, he would not have had the opportunity to understand God's purposes and plans. What does it mean for us? Well, there are things about God and his ways that we will never know because there is a side, a mysterious side, because he wouldn't be God if we knew everything about God, obviously. It's the nature of who he is. There's a hiddenness about him. But there has to be a hunger in us to want to know more of God, about God, his plans and his purposes. We want to know him more and more. And the things, and and the very simple rule is that if you want to know God's ways a little more, simple advice, seems silly, but it's, you need to spend more time with him. It's, it's about as simple as it gets. You need to spend time with him, with the, with the Lord, with his word. Following on from that, the second lesson from these first verses is that there is a difference between being a servant and being a friend. Last week we saw the eagerness in his service to God. He just went over the top and he was hurrying here and hurrying there and got Sarah to, to you know, 16 kilos of, of wheat to, for bread. Man, there's a lot of bread. And he was just going over the top because it wasn't a sense of duty. Oh, no, we've got visitors again. <sighs> no. He was... He was going out of his mind trying to hurry the hundred year old guy with his walking frame and all of that sort of hurrying along the, the desert under the trees and oh, it wasn't a duty it was out of an honour a respect there wasn't too much that he couldn't do for, it was a sense of intimacy it was a privilege 
A servant, a servant may know his master's plans and purposes. May. But most servants and slaves and all of that don't really. The most common rule is that the servant just has to do what he's told without being given the reason why he's doing what he's doing. But a friend does. A friend does. A friend knows. A friend is able to get next alongside and know, why are you doing this? And gets to discover the plans and purposes. There's an uncovering of a heart. The master doesn't have to explain his actions. I was like, well, there's three visitors and we're killing a whole calf for three visitors. 16 kilos would just be so much bread. What are you doing? No, they didn't question. They just went ahead and did it. I mean, it's, 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 it's Sarah, no, we just got to do it. In the same way, the friend gets to know and says, well, I'll let you know a little bit more about what's going on here. And that's a privilege, isn't it? Thank you for opening up, for telling me about what's going on. And this is what Jesus said to his disciples. I no longer call you servants. This is from John chapter 15, verse 15. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. It's exactly what I'm talking about. Instead, I have called you friends. Remember that Jesus' disciples asking questions, Jesus explaining and explaining and explaining over and over and over again. A master doesn't have to explain himself to his servants, but a friend does. For everything, and why is Jesus doing this? Because everything I have learned from from the Father, I have made known to you. I'm not hiding anything back. I'm actually telling you what I know. All that I know. And while Jesus desires friendship with us, he also tells us that this friendship with him is based on obedience. There's no holding back here. Do you want to be his friend? If so, tell him. But don't stop there. You need to do what he says. And Jesus didn't mince his words when he said, anyone who loves me, this is John chapter 14, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. So love and obedience are together. My Father will love them and I will come to them and make our home with them. There's hospitality there, right there, isn't it? We're going to come in. We'll take over the joint. But anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. There's a clear sign between those who love God and those who don't. You ask anybody, you love God? Yeah, I love God. Do you do what he says? What do you mean? The third aspect we want to highlight here is that while God's covenantal promises to Abraham, you know, the stars, the sand, and it just went on and on. 
They were unconditional. They were going to be fulfilled no matter what. So despite Abraham's ups and downs and, you know, wayward wanderings down south to Egypt and, and, you know, the stuff with Hagar and all of that, God's will was going to get done no matter what. But the way that Abraham brought up his family in God's ways was an essential part of the plan how God, what God was going to do to fulfil his promises. It says here that, it says, I have chosen him. So Abraham was God's chosen channel of blessings to all the nations of the earth. But before we get to all the nations to the rest of the earth, he had to begin in his own household. He had to be, he had to start taking effect, being implemented in his home with his own family. We can see the importance of the family in God's overall plan for mankind at a time in the history of society where the family is coming under so much pressure. We need to remember this. It is something that God will use for his glory. It is part of his overall plan for mankind. We didn't make this stuff up, despite what our detractors might say. And, and, and note the biblical commands for training children are directed, is directed, are directed to the fathers, not the mothers. This means, guys, that we have a God-given responsibility to instill the Lord's ways upon our children. Don't shy back from that. The second point we want to say is that we need to understand, we need to be understanding God's justice and grace from verses 20 to 21. Then the Lord said, the cry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now this is an area, like I said before, this is an area that Christians, as Christians, we really need to try and understand for ourselves so then we can have an intelligent answer, a response to others. Where is God's grace in all of this? Let me just give you a few. God's grace is seen in his patience in how he communicates his warnings. Before he sends judgment, he warns them. If you don't think that happens, read Jonah. God's grace is seen in his willingness to engage with Abraham and reveal his plan to his human friend. He didn't have to, but he did. God's grace is seen in the fact that he was willing to save the city and and just put up with this annoying human being that just kept bartering down. You know, like 
I'm not going to pay 50, I'm going to pay 40 and 30 and 20 and okay. It just goes down and down all the way to... God's grace is in He was willing to save the city for the sake of a few righteous. His grace is seen in the fact that sin... You've got to get your head around this. His grace is seen in the fact that sin cannot continue its path of destruction of human lives. God has to do something about it and he does. Do you really want sin to just continue and accumulate and infect and destroy? Really? God's grace is seen in the fact that he hears the outcry and does something about it. His intervention, let's even say his judgment, is an act of grace on humanity. No, it's not. Yes, it is. find a cancer in your arm and they say we have to chop your arm off to save the rest of the body is the doctor being judgmental on you? You don't like my arm. Well no, it's, it's, it's going to infect the rest of the body. We have to cut it off. It's the same principle. It's an act of judgment. Now, having said that, we naturally think of the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah mostly in sexual, sexual in nature, right? After all, that's where the word sodomy comes from. Yes, Sodom was sexually deprived, and, but it wasn't just that. The description from the Bible is that there, there was a breakdown in law and order. It appears that the mobs started to rule society. The poor, the needy, the defenceless were brutalized. Well, Paul, that doesn't say in even chapter 18 or chapter 19, but it says that in Ezekiel chapter 19. You have to read the prophets to understand a little bit more of the condition of Sodom and Gomorrah. Ezekiel 19. So the poor, the needy, the defenceless were brutalized. One can imagine the rape, the murder that went on with relative impunity, they just got away with it because they could. Do you see what is happening in our world today? You see, the law, the law, is there to keep a fallen humanity, after Genesis 3, a fallen humanity under tabs, to keep a a control So it doesn't get out of control. That's why God puts judges. That's why God puts the rule of law. That's why he sends policemen. That's why he puts leaders, kings and presidents and others, those in authority so that they can control, even through the sword, Romans 13 says. But however, if if the law is, is not enforced, by those who sit on the judges as a bench and they just excuse sin after sin, or no, they don't call it sin, crime after crime or whatever it is and excuse it for whatever reason, who's going to take it seriously? This is a real problem in front of us, in our society, where criminals can sometimes literally get away 
with murder. Not so with God. Now God's plan of righteousness and justice means that no sin escapes his notice and judgment. And the word for outcry, the scribe that we see here, is used in scripture to describe the cries of the oppressed and the brutalised. When Cain killed Abel, the Lord said, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. That's Genesis chapter 4. These words tell us that well, the dead, those who have been murdered, don't cry, but their blood does, the consequences of the crime. They cry out to the Lord. The unjust deeds, they, as people plead for justice in an unjust world, that they think they're going to get away with it. That's why they do it. Pleading for the righteous judgment of God. Yet a world that continues to live in relative ease and peace and freedom continues to reject the notion, any notion of God's judgment. How many years of prosperity have we had in Australia? How many years since the last world war? How many years since the Japanese started bombing Darwin and everybody was packing and packing the churches to pray so that Australia wouldn't get invaded? It's been a long time ago, isn't it? This generation got no idea what it was like. No idea to send your your sons and your husbands out to the dock to war. But some people here do remember. They know what it was like. These words tell us that God does not sit around and do nothing. And Sodom had a taste of God's judgment 15 years before when the kings of the east were conquered. The city was captured. Lord Lot was taken, remember? All of that. We spoke about that. And God used Abraham with his 318 men and did a victory over five kings. They brought Lot with his lot. And and you just imagine the the newspapers in in Sodom and all of that as the years went went by that they just shrug off the incident as bad luck and continued in their sin in full speed. Fifteen years had passed and maybe some some kids had grown up and said, oh, that was just bad luck, you know, we had no, we we're too weak, whatever, but now we got strong and everything else, we're safe. In his, in his mercy, God sent them a warning and then delivered them through Abraham to be a warning to generations to come. They did not heed the warning, so they cannot possibly say that God did not tell them what was going on. If it happened today, imagine the aftermath of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
It was all an unfortunate natural disaster, most probably caused by climate change. Yes, apparently volcanoes and climate change, volcano eruptions are caused by climate change. Just look it up. There will be footage in the evening news with all these geologists and experts of how this thing occurs and, the, and see if we can develop, invest more money, there, there's the word, invest more money and more funds so that we can have, develop an early warning system. But no one, and if any pastor should merely utter the words, the holy God of heaven has judged a wicked people, can you imagine the outcry? Point three, understanding prayer, verses 22 to 33. Understanding prayer. We're not going to look at all the verses. Verses 22 to 24 says this, The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. And then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city, will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? So the two angels leave the Lord and Abraham and they continue. Abraham then came near and begins what what can only be described as an intimate prayer, as intimate as you can get before the Lord. In the same way, we we draw, we're encouraged. We're commanded, we're invited, whatever language you want to use, to to draw near to God so we can pray to his heart, with his heart. And here, Abraham, the friend of God, becomes not just a friend of God, but he becomes a, a friend of men. And, and I think Abraham is never more like God than at the moment that he's interceding for this city, for Sodom. Remember how earlier he was the saviour of Sodom, the rescue? Now he becomes the intercessor for a whole city. To, plead, to, to intercede is to, to plead the case of another person. That's what interceding means. And as we look at these verses, we find four characteristics of biblical prayer. The first one is modesty. He didn't know what God would do ultimately. He didn't know. He, remember, God is sovereign, we are not. And even though we pray in faith, we cannot presume what God will do. Even though we pray in faith, because we always say, now, you can't say, if you say, it's, may the Lord's will be done, that, it, that's expressing a lack of faith. All right? Really? Modesty. Secondly, humility. He didn't demand anything from God. He, Abraham, I think, models a wonderful humility when he says, I am dust but ashes. Dust is the beginning of life, right? Made from the dust of the earth. And ashes is, well... The other end. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes, says the preacher at the funeral. That's how he comes before God. 
That's all I am, Lord. So I think we need to approach God when we come. Even though we come in boldness, through Jesus Christ, we come in humility, reverence and awe. Thirdly, persistence. Persistence. This is, I think, probably where a lot of us are lacking persistence. He came back again and again and again. He could think of his back and forth six times in all. And, and he has to say, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. Please, pretty please. What if only ten can be found there? He's pleading again and again and again. And fourthly, he's persuasive. He based everything he said on God's character. Will not the judge of the earth, of all the earth, do what is right? He is basing his plea, his prayer, on the character of God because he knew God's justice. Some issues worth considering, and I know you've probably got all these questions in the back of your head. I'm going to deal with some of them. How much time we got? Oh, okay. Why did God allow Abraham to intercede for Sodom if he knew what he was going to do? Maybe that's a question, a fair question. You know, so if God already knows what he's going to do, why pray? What's the point of praying? Now to say that is, is, is to come up against the, and to understand a little bit more of what is the mystery of prayer. Some of the answers we find in this passage. God allowed Abraham to intercede in order to reveal his mercy. He did it so that we would know that he, God, takes no pleasure in destroying the wicked. Here is just another confirmation. And Abraham's prayer shows us the power, the privilege that the righteous people can have. No, I know his prayer did not ultimately save the city and and I think it was probably never intended to. But it did make Abraham's manifest, you know, in his own life, the mercy and compassion of God. Abraham was growing in stature before God. He was not thinking about himself, his seed, his descendants, his land. He was thinking about somebody else. This is why God asks us to pray that we may take on, that he might rub off on us something of his character, of his goodness and mercy and grace, of his image in us, that we reflect his glory. Another question. Shouldn't we always know the answer to our prayers? We don't always, I know, we don't always see the answers to our prayers. In this side of heaven anyway. Nowhere do we see that Abraham learned of Lot's safety. Nowhere do we read of Abraham and Lot ever seeing each other again. As far as Abraham may have been concerned, unless God revealed it to him, Lot probably, he probably thought that Lot perished with Sodom and 
and may have felt that his whole process of interceding and pleading was fruitless and ultimately sad. And sometimes our prayers, we won't know the answer, whether it was positive or negative, or just wait. But it wasn't Abraham's fault for not trying. Nor is it always our fault. And I know that we tend to blame ourselves and our sin and everything else, but, but, but if there is no other natural explanation, whatever, we, ultimately we have to just leave it to God. And with that truth in mind, we return to the most fundamental truth about prayer, which is that we must pray. We have to pray, thy will be done. Thy will be done. And leave it there. Now, will God spare a city or nation today because of the Christians in it? Maybe you've asked yourself that. One of the disturbing things about this passage is that it is not the presence of evil but the absence of good that brings about God's judgment. Ten righteous people could have saved Sodom. Now, no matter what we think of the sin of Sodom, this much is beyond debate. God wanted to spare the city. And here we see that a godly minority does play a role in influencing God's judgment. Now, it might delay judgment, but ultimately not prevent it because the sin was just so grievous. Verse 20. And and what also happens is that that God will not always remove the righteous, the good, his own people from the wicked before he judges the wicked as he did in Lot's case. He doesn't always rescue Lot and his family like he did, like he does today. Another question, would Sodom have been a better place if Lot had spoken out more? Thought about this. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. All added up, I think Lot had probably 20, 25 years living in Sodom. Um, His faith wasn't always as strong. He tended to be just, you know, follow the coattails of Uncle Abe. Um, He had 20, 25 years. Noah had 100 years as the ark was getting built and preaching and all of that and people would not listen. They just would not listen. Now, I I do believe that there are times when faithfulness demands that Christians must speak and we must speak for good and and against evil. The stories during the Second World War and and, uh, before that, during Nazi Germany, Pastor Martin Niemöller spoke out against Hitler. He was killed. Martin Luther King protested against segregation in the 60s. He was assassinated. Many Christians are speaking out against abortion, same-sex marriage today. In these days of moral decline, 
We have to speak the truth. If we don't, who will? Who is? I'm not saying that people have to like it. I'm saying that we have to speak the truth. But when all is said and done, your prayers matter more than your politics. Your prayers matter more than your politics. Charles Spurgeon once said, if sinners will not hear you speak, they cannot prevent you praying. It's a good quote, isn't it? He's right. You can reach people through prayer who won't listen to your words or even look you in the eye and give you, allow you to the freedom of speech to speak and respond. They can t- stop you from speaking. They can put you in jail. They can take everything you have, but they cannot stop you from praying. As we conclude. I cannot help but think that there was a point that Abraham just simply had to surrender everything, his thoughts, his patterns, his pleas to God, didn't he? God was going to do what God was going to do. He did his best. He tried. As we conclude, we were reminded that at, this, at the moment where Jesus is praying for us, at this moment Jesus is interceding for us, Romans 8.34, He's there, the throne of God interceding for you and me. He prays that we might be kept from the claws of Satan, who's like a roaring lion causing havoc. That we might be kept in unity and that our faith might continue and our love increase. And the only reason why the Christians, why we survive at all is because he has great, we have this great intercessor in heaven. We, and let me conclude with this, we have the ultimate friend in high places. And to him be the glory. Amen.